Jerry McCann stepped up to the podium, his statement clutched in his hands, his voice strained with emotion. Words cannot describe the anguish and despair that we are feeling as the parents of our beautiful daughter, Madeline. Please, if you have Madeline, let her come home to her mommy, daddy, brother, and sister. Kate McCann stood by his side, her face twisted in anguish, clinging to her daughter's favorite pink stuffed cat. Their daughter, Madeline, had been missing for less than 24 hours at that point, and the hope of finding her alive was palpable, but that hope would fade as hours, days, months, and years passed with no sign of the little girl, dead or alive. I'm Marina. With me, I have my best friend, Laura, and this is Grim. like a couple of authors here i know i'm like a poet and i didn't even know it <laughs> that was really engaging engaging mm-hmm. was it interesting i was trying for a different adjective yes <laughs> today we're talking about the disappearance of mm-hmm. madeline mccann before we start i want to give a big shout out and thank you to our newest patreon my cousin joshua z Woo! Woo! Joshua! we love you Josh! we love you not just because marina has you because you're family <laughs> <laughs> Thank you to all of our amazing Patreons, as always. If you guys want your own shout out and want more grim, like some bonus episodes or some P-bonies, as we like to call them, you can find us at patreon.com and search grim colon a true crime podcast. Also, Joshua is one of the people that has sent me a spooky listener story, a gremlin story. So for anybody that's not on our social media, we are looking for people's spooky, scary, or just crazy stories, whatever you have. Like, you know, did you date a murderer? Like, was your best friend abducted? I don't know. Something crazy. Is your house haunted? Like, let us know. Mm -hmm. Send us a Gmail. Send us a carrier pigeon, whatever (laughs) you need to do. But we're super interested. We want to put together an episode like that because they're so cool to read. And I haven't been allowed to read them yet because Marina's read them so that it doesn't spoil a surprise. Yeah, I'm going first with one of, with one of those episodes. So um, yeah. I want to I wanna read them, send them. Okay, thanks. <laughs> so Madeline McCann. I had to do a dive into this one because it's popped back up on everyone's radar due to recent claims mm-hmm. made by a woman claiming that she could be Madeline. I saw that. And I actually, for all, I knew the name and I knew it was a disappearance and that is it. Mm-hmm. So I have held off looking up any okay. articles or anything because I knew you were doing this case. Okay. Well, we're going to talk about her towards the end of the episode. Okay. For this episode, I got most of my information from the Netflix documentary, The Disappearance of Madeline McCann, and then I just wandered around the interwebs looking at probably a gazillion articles for additional information and tidbits about the case. I also want to start off by saying this case has been talked about so much Mm -hmm. by so many people and so many media sources. There's been telling, retelling, speculation, downright fabrications, it became hard to figure out where the truth even lies yeah. on, on what's left on the internet. 
Um, I went with the most often cited information where I could, but I just wanted to highlight that I did, you know, I would find a piece of information and would try to validate it on as many sources as I could. But, you know, so if you go online and you see a variation of what I'm saying, or mm-hmm. you heard something different somewhere else, I'm not at all surprised. It's just chaos and anarchy out there. Yeah. So. That, that is, that was my experience researching for Natalie Holloway. Yes. Because there were so many theories and so many questions and not a lot of information from the authorities for that case right. that it was hard to tell what was fact or fiction. And then even if something is fiction, if enough articles get a hold of it, it reads like fact and it's really hard to tell the difference, especially if you can't go interview people. And that is unfortunately not within our budget. Right, right, right. And the other thing that I noticed too, is because this is a European case, it's involving media sources I'm not familiar with. So I could be reading a source from like a well-known bullshit tabloid, Mm -hmm. but Mm -hmm. I don't know that because I don't read like UK sources. So anything from the daily mail. Maybe, <laughs> maybe think, a few, I but I think that's not a good one. <laughs> yeah. But I didn't, I didn't, re- I really didn't rely yeah. on any single, like that's all good. of the main information came from that documentary and then the rest I made sure to validate. And, that's awesome. and in fact, I think it was a daily mail article. They <laughs> included all this information on one piece of this case that nobody else had. And I'm like, I'm going to go with that's wrong because right. you're the only one that right. said it. Yeah. But it was it was tangential anyway, so it's fine. <laughs> so you, you were going to include it if it was if it was validated. <laughs> Maybe. How many pages you got there? <laughs> I, I bet you can hear that. That was that was a brick dropping, in other words, Marina's notes. I also have to acknowledge that maybe you have a longer case now because you can actually write it with like a real keyboard and a real screen because you would not believe if you've listened to many of our earlier episodes, Marina would write her notes on her little iPhone screen. I would. Which blew me away. I, I don't would. know how it was insanity. But I do my best work at like 1130 yeah. at night. So that's when I have my phone and not my laptop. No. Anyways, anyway. off the rails right from the start. Yeah, so here we go. That's good. It's a good, we have a short case. It's fine. <laughs> so let me give you some background information on the McCann family and Madeline. Madeline Beth McCann was born on May 12th, 2003 to parents Jerry and Kate McCann. Madeline's twin brother and sister, Sean and Emily, would be born just two years later. The McCann family was a wholesome family next door. They were practicing Roman Catholics, and Kate and Jerry had enviable careers as doctors. Kate started out in aesthetics and then moved on to general practice. Jerry started his career in sports medicine and then went into cardiology. Wow. Yeah. Impressive. Yeah. Yeah. At the very end of April 2007, the McCann family left on vacation, or holiday as they say in Europe and on Peppa Pig, (laughs) to Praia de Luz in Portugal, renting apartment 5A of the family-friendly Ocean Club Resort. The McCanns were traveling with a group of friends that consisted of nine adults total, six of whom were doctors, and eight children, including the McCanns' three. The McCanns and their friends were having a great time on their trip, everything going smoothly, until day six. What started out as a normal, relaxing day ended as a parent's worst nightmare. May 3rd, 2007, at 10 a.m., Jerry and Kate dropped off their three children at the Ocean Club's Kids Club while they went for a walk. Around 12.30, they picked the kids back up and brought them for lunch to their apartment. After lunch, the family spent time together at the pool before Kate and Jerry dropped the kids back off at the Kids Club around 3.30. Around 6, after the kids had already eaten dinner, Kate picked them up to bring them back to the apartment while Jerry went for an hour tennis lesson. Madeline was very tired that day after her activities and asked to be carried home. 
When they returned to the apartment, Kate read Madeline and the twins a book, and Madeline was already falling asleep. When Jerry returned around seven, they put the children to bed in the same room. Madeline was sleeping in a bed that was up against the wall on the left-hand side, right when you walk in the door, and the twins were sleeping in the middle of the room in two pack-and-plays. Jerry and Kate showered and changed, getting ready for their evening, before sitting down to share a bottle of wine while the kids fell asleep. Once the kids were asleep, the McCanns left like they had done the previous nights of their vacation. Each evening, the adults would leave the sleeping children in their respective apartments and go wine and dine at the tapas restaurant on the other side of the hotel pool, between 50 to 100 yards away from the apartment or about a two-minute walk. The party had developed a system where they took turns checking on the children about every 15 minutes. They'd either peek their heads in the room or just listen outside of the windows to make sure none of the kids were awake or crying. And I, I, I feel like that I would do that because no, Marina's shaking her head. Uh, to be clear, I don't have children. So maybe, <laughs> maybe that's glaringly obvious. I guess I was thinking like every 15 minutes seems okay. No, no. Okay. If, Okay. Marina's like, you will never babysit my children. <laughs> I'm I'm not going to parent shame no, here no. Yeah. to each their own. I would never do this. I mean, maybe, maybe if I had a video baby monitor and had right. eyes on them the whole time, maybe. But I still won't even like walk around the block when my kids are napping because mm. you're leaving them. If there was an emergent mm. situation, like your kid woke up and was choking on something mm. or they got their finger stuck in a tag on one of their stuffed animals, mm. like how long until you're there? You don't know if you get there and your kid is crying hysterically, you don't know if they've been crying for one minute or 15 minutes. Yeah, I think, and I think the age is probably important too because- the Oh, they twins, were like three and one and a half? Okay, yeah, that's really young. Because I was thinking when I was, I don't know, five, six, somewhere around there, maybe my dad's probably listening to this, going to tell me I'm completely wrong. <laughs> but he and my mom, I think, would go to our neighbor's. Which, okay, but you're, yeah, you're five or six yeah. and you can walk next door right. or you can operate a phone, right? Yeah, I don't five know. Five or six? I don't remember being five or six, I don't so. either. I'm really undereducated in this entire area. Yeah. <laughs> I can't tell. I just, I mean, and they're in a foreign country. That's true. I think with that many, especially with that many people on vacation, mm. the smarter plan okay, true. would have yeah, been yeah. every night one couple hangs back. They yeah. have sort of a date night and are in charge of the kids in the mm. apartments and then yeah. they can rotate through and this way the majority of them get to enjoy it. Yeah. Here's the kicker. The hotel offered a babysitting service for $12 an hour. The McCanns decided against it because they didn't want to leave their kids with strangers. Oh, that's that's so sad. It is sad. That's well, because you so, know what happens. Exactly. But like, oh. are you kidding me? Oh. You think it's better to leave them unattended than with somebody that works at the hotel? I just, right. I can't. I right. Can't. You're not like, they're not like paying a someone from the street that they just happened to run into like, Hey, do right. you mind watching our kids? Yeah. Like it's, some like random yeah. Portuguese gentleman they pulled off the street. Right. It's someone that works for the resort that right. they're staying at. Oh, that's so sad. Yeah. It's really sad. Around eight 30, the McCann's arrived at the tapas restaurant and got settled in. They were among the first to arrive and would soon be joined by the other adults on vacation with them. The tapas seven as they would later be called at nine Oh five. Jerry went back to the apartment to check on the children. He didn't need his key since they just left the back patio door open. Oh, dear. There were two doors into the apartment, the back patio door and the front door that required a key. 
Earlier that week, the McCanns had used a key to go in through the front door, but that door was right next to the children's bedroom, so they were afraid that the noise of the lock and door would wake them, so they just started leaving that back patio door open to make it easier to check on them. Oh, dear. When Jerry got inside, he noticed that the children's bedroom door was open about 45 degrees, which is not how they left it. Kate and Jerry usually just left the door slightly cracked. Jerry peeked into the room and saw that Madeline and the twins were all fast asleep. Closing the door again so that it was just slightly cracked, he went to the bathroom and returned to the restaurant. I already have chills. You're waiting with bated breath for the shoe to drop. Yes. On his way back to the tapas bar at around 9.08, Jerry ran into Jeremy Wilkins, another man on vacation at the resort, and the two men stood and talked for a few minutes. Just two minutes later, at 9.10, Jane Tanner, one of the tapas seven, was walking up the road to check on her child. Jane saw Jerry and Jeremy talking, but they apparently didn't see her. At the same time, Jane saw a man walking quickly across the top of the road in front of her, walking away from the apartments, headed towards the outer edge of the resort. In his arms was a little girl in pink pajamas with bare feet who looked to be fast asleep, hanging limply in this man's arms. Mm. Jane noticed him, but didn't think much of it, given that they were on a resort and it was not uncommon for children to be carried around by their parents. Jane checked on her daughter and then returned to the restaurant. What happened to everyone checking on all the kids? So I think that they said, I think that they said that they sort of checked on each of their kids and sometimes others volunteered to check on them. Mm. We'll, we'll get into it. It's, yeah. it's not as clear as no. one would think. No. Their and system. Sounds, right. And it's exactly, it sounds like it was like, oh yeah, we check on them occasionally. The, the building's not burning down. It's all set. You know, it's fine. And I think they got to a point where they were exaggerating how often they checked on their children mm. because who wants to admit that they were just like of intermittently course. checking of on their course. children on vacation. When one of them goes missing. Exactly. Right. Right. Exactly. At 9.25, it was Kate's turn to check on the kids. When she got up, one of the top is seven, Matt Oldfield, said he would go check on the McCann's kids because he was already going to check on his own. There you go. Matt entered the McCann's apartment through the unlocked patio door. He could see some light coming from the room, but the curtains were closed. He didn't notice the curtains moving or any sort of draft blowing in. He noted that the door again was about half open, which is not how Jerry left it, but Matt wouldn't have known that. With the door half open, he could see straight into the room at the twins' pack and play and saw them both sleeping peacefully. He didn't peek his head in to check on Madeline because everything seemed fine and all was quiet except for what may have been the sound of one of the twins rolling over. Matt returned to the restaurant. At 10, Kate got up and went to check on the kids. She entered through the back patio door, as had everyone else, and she too noticed the door to the children's room was open wider than usual, and it was lighter than she expected it to be. As she was walking towards the door, the wind blew and slammed the door shut. She opened the door and saw the twins, but Madeline's bed was empty and the window and shutters were wide open. Oh, no. Kate looked around the apartment quickly, initially assuming that Madeline had gotten up to look for them, but she was nowhere to be found. Kate sprinted back to the tapas restaurant and shouted, they've taken her, they've taken her, Madeline's gone, in hysterics. Weird... I'm sure we'll talk about it. Very weird statement. I don't have an answer for you. No. Why she would jump right to that. I, in the, okay, so on two sides. One, I think it's strange just because you, I would think like she's missing or you know what I mean? Something like that. She's gone. I can't find right. Madeline. Madeline's gone. Yeah. Right. 
But on the other hand, if you see this, maybe your brain, like see that scenario, maybe your brain just automatically goes to someone took her. Right. And then by the time you get out and are yelling it, that's where you've come to. So, right. And of course everything, you know, hindsight's 2020. So everybody looks back and breaks through everything with a fine tooth comb. Exactly. You're like, I didn't mean anything. My brain was not functioning at that moment. Yeah, that's fair. So the group ran back to the apartment and began the search for Madeline. One of Jerry's friends from tennis said she could hear Kate howling and that the parents were absolutely distraught. When Jane heard Madeline was missing, she said, oh my God, I saw a man carrying a girl wearing pajamas like Madeline. Around 10.15, while the others were searching for Madeline, Matt's wife, Rachel, goes down to the 24-hour reception at the bottom of the hill to raise the alarm and the police were called to the Mm -hmm. scene. The GNR, which are the small town police patrol unit, were the first to arrive on the scene and they joined the search for Madeline, both in the apartment and outside on the resort and in the area surrounding the resort. The scene was not secured at all. Yeah. There were police in and out of Madeline's bedroom and the other rooms. Doors and cupboards were opened and closed. There were about 20 people traipsing through the apartment. We may not have a perfect uh, system in the United States. I'll leave it at that. But... One thing we do have a focus on is preserving crime scenes and the importance of uh, the chain of evidence and all of that. And it's mind blowing to me that that's not the case in a lot of these uh, cases that we've talked about. And I think, but I think part of the problem is with this case is the initial consideration was maybe she just wandered off. Mm -hmm. Like they weren't like, oh, this is possibly a crime scene. They were looking for her. They thought maybe she's hiding in the apartment. Maybe she's wandering around. So I think that may have played a part of of it. But they, I mean, they came in, they were dusting for fingerprints and stuff. I mean, like they, they were treating it as a crime scene, but just not, I don't know. It sort of was like, they didn't know what was going on at that point. I think that reminds me of the campus one. Oh my gosh. I can't remember the name. Kristen Smart. Yes. Um, where they, same thing in the dorm room, they didn't search everything because they were just looking to see, was she missing? Um, Right. And it had been cleaned out by the time they got there. Right. Exactly. At around midnight, the head of the GNR said they needed to alert someone at the police judiciary, which was the major crimes unit. It was described as the FBI of Portugal for us Americans. And they stepped in to take over the investigation, which was led by Gonsalvo Amaral, which we're going to talk about that fella a little later. The search lasted that night until around 4 a.m. on May 4th, but I'd be willing to bet the McCanns never went to sleep Mm -hmm. at all that first night. How could you? Exactly. That was literally written in my notes. How could you? (laughs) That afternoon, the McCanns made a statement to the public for the first time. Jerry said, words cannot describe the anguish and despair that we're feeling as the parents of our beautiful daughter, Madeline. We request that anyone who may have any information relating to Madeline's disappearance, no matter how trivial, contact the Portuguese police and help us get her back safely. Please, if you have Madeline, let her come home to her mommy, daddy, brother, and sister. Mm. And Kate was standing there with Madeline's cuddle cat just clutched in her arms. It was absolutely heartbreaking to see and i can't imagine being these parents Mm-mm. my daughter is three and you can actually hear the panic rise in my voice when she gets out of the car and walks around to the other side and i lose sight of her and mm-hmm. I, I say her name and when she doesn't immediately respond the next time i say her name you can audibly hear the panic rising in my voice absolutely you get one chance to respond to me or i'm going in full panic mode right period well things do happen extremely right. quickly Right. And especially in parking lots, I'm just yeah. like, please don't wander off into the middle of the road. Like, right. So yeah, panic. Just, I just can't imagine being them. Don't want to. I'm glad you picked this case for yourself. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's good. Good times. 
At the outset of the investigation, the only lead they had was that man that Jane saw carrying the child in pajamas before Madeline was discovered missing. The police had a sketch of Madeline's potential kidnapper put together from the description provided by Jane Tanner, but the sketch was an egg shape with a side part. No features drawn in at all. What? I'm not kidding. I'm going to show Laura the photo now. Oh. (laughs) It is indeed an, an upside down egg, I would say with a side part. The only, the only, um, devil's advocate I'll say is at least it doesn't distract if she doesn't know the features. Right. Like, I guess that's better than putting out false details. I mean, but I'm not sure. You know how we say about the sketches, um, that if you know the person, you'll recognize it. Do you know this person? (laughs) Yeah. He fell off a wall. I was going to say Humpty Dumpty. (laughs) We solved it. It's Humpty Dumpty. Perfect. Perfect. Oh my gosh. Oh man. Portuguese police showed this photo to locals who laughed in response. Yeah. It reminds me of when I start a story and I'm like, oh, who's that guy? And my husband will be like, oh, the guy that went with the nose and the mouth. It's like that, except that's not even in this sketch. No nose and no mouth. Yes. Just a head. Right. A man with a head. We're not even sure if that's a man, to be honest. No, we're not. You're no. right. You're right. Yeah. But he has a side part. Yeah. Key details. (laughs) In the meantime, police are still searching the area surrounding the resort. They alert border guards and airports to watch for Madeline, and hundreds of volunteers were helping in the search. And just like in other disappearance cases, reports started coming in that people had seen Madeline. There was a report that she was seen holding a man's hand at a local gas station. A couple on vacation said she had a sad look on her face and asked the man in an accent, can I see my mommy now? That night, the couple saw Madeline's photograph on the news, and the woman said she was 99.9% certain that that was the sad little girl she had seen. Yikes. The gas station had CCTV, but it had been recorded over already by the time that they got it. I was thinking that because I, so me and dates, I'm trying to think of when this was, because she was born in 2003 and she was only like three, so we're at 2006-ish. It's 2007 because she was born on, I think, like the 7th, and it was May 3rd, so she was about to be four. Yep. Uh, May 12th, I think, because I remembered that, but not anything else. Um, So, but I was thinking, I was wondering if it was late enough. It is May 12th. Mm -hmm. Yeah, thanks. Um, But I was wondering if it was late enough that there were cameras like at the hotel or anything like that. But I think, I feel like you would have mentioned. I would have. Yeah, no, there was no mention of cameras. No. Uh, There was another claim that she was seen in a local grocery store with a man and another person saw her in a car with a man. Every lead was investigated, but nothing ever came of these sightings. On May 14th, 2007, more than 10 days after Madeline's disappearance, the police had a suspect. The police named Robert Murat as their first Arguido, which is their word for prime suspect, basically. Robert Murat lived just 150 yards away from the McCann's vacation apartment in a villa with his mother. When the investigation began, Robert called the Portuguese police and offered his services as an interpreter since he spoke both English and Portuguese fluently, and Mm. he felt so badly for this family. The police took him up on his offer. Involved with the investigation, Robert spoke to reporters and asked them questions about the case. But rather than thank Robert for his involvement, the police grew increasingly suspicious of him. They realized that the man that Jane had seen carrying a child was headed in the direction of Robert's villa. I was going to ask that. Yep. Yeah. So they named Robert as a suspect and brought him in for intense, aggressive questioning concerning Madeline's disappearance. Robert had nothing to tell them that they didn't already know, and he maintained his innocence and said he had nothing to do with it. 
I wonder if this is one where they had more information and reason to be suspicious. Because if it was only because his apartment was in that direction, that's not really excellent evidence. I think they honestly had nothing. So they were just seeing what would stick to the wall. And I guess the only other thing you can think of is we know that um, the perpetrator will sometimes be close and insert themselves in the investigation. So fine. But... That's a big stretch. But, I think that was yeah. the theory. Yeah. They fair. had yeah. nothing else True. to go on though. So I guess if I were the parents, I would want them to investigate everything. So right. Um, even a, even a it. hunch. Exactly. I guess. Yeah. But they even brought in three of the Tapas seven into the interview room with Robert to confront him. And they said that they had seen Robert around the night of Madeline's disappearance, like accusing him of just oh. being in the area. Well, he lives there. He does live there. <laughs> and the police had nothing on Robert. Right. I mean, like not even circumstantial evidence. Right. Like they had nothing. They searched his villa, but came up with nothing more than straws to grasp at, if you can even call them that. Namely, the fact that the police found that Robert had hired a 22-year-old computer developer named Sergei Malinka to build him a website for his property company. Seems innocent enough. Mm -hmm. Police thought there was something there when they noticed that there was a call from Robert to Sergei around the time that Madeline disappeared. Neither Robert nor Sergey could remember the phone call or what was discussed. In fact, I think Sergey thought it was a pocket dial. Huh. But it was enough for the police to pick up Sergey, raid his apartment, seize his computers, and interrogate him extensively about Madeline's disappearance. I take back what I said about the different the different systems because they're really doing everything they can. They really and are. And then some. And then some. My goodness. Yeah, I don't think we would do that in the U.S. because you don't have enough to go on. No. Yeah. Uh, The police had nothing um, because there was nothing to get. Right. And Sergey claims the police ruined his life because of this one missed phone call pocket dial, which I can see that. Well, did his name get out in like the papers Mm -hmm. and all that? Yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. Yeah. They had taken his computers and hard drives and claimed that there was pornography on them. Sergey said he had a lot of files, drives, and computers belonging to his clients, and police never identified which device they found this alleged pornography on, but the media went wild, and Sergey got labeled as a pedophile, human trafficker, Russian mafia, and on and on. Someone actually lit his car on fire outside of his apartment and wrote Fala in red spray paint next to it, which meant speak in Portuguese. Wow. So these two men were investigated with essentially zero evidence that they were involved in Madeline's disappearance, which I get it's an investigation, but the police just like ruined their lives for, and got nothing out of it. Yeah. I I would agree that that would ruin my life as Mm -hmm. well. Yes. Mm -hmm. Sergey's experience demonstrated that the media was all over this story. It was an absolute circus, and the McCann family used that to their advantage in the beginning, hoping to spread the word in order to find Madeline. Kate and Jerry made statements to the media on the regular following her disappearance, begging anyone with any information, no matter how small, to come forward. Kate was always carrying that little pink cat with her. In addition to the statements made to the media while they were in Portugal, Kate and Jerry also went on a local media tour. Using a private jet offered by a multimillionaire, Sir Philip Green, the couple traveled to Amsterdam in the Netherlands, Madrid, Spain, Rabat, Morocco, St. Peter's Square in Vatican City, and Berlin, Germany, to give press conferences concerning her disappearance. While many were happy to see the support being shown to the McCanns in the quest for their daughter, others asked, why her? 
Hmm. Other children had gone missing in Portugal, and some question whether those children may have been found if the same dedication mm-hmm. and resources had been applied to their cases. I'm going to talk about one case, and then I'll draw the parallels. But on March 4th, 1998, 11-year-old Rui Pedro disappeared from Portugal without a trace, leaving behind only his bicycle. On September 2nd, 1998, in what was called Operation Cathedral, law enforcement agents in 14 countries raided almost 200 members of the Wonderland Club, which was an international ring of pedophiles. (gasps) The Wonderland Club required members to possess sexually explicit images of children, and members would use secret passwords to meet and trade the images like baseball cards. Some of the images even pictured club members molesting their (gasps) own relatives. (gasps) Yeah, these are despicable people. There were more than 750,000 images and 1,800 videos recovered during that raid, depicting at least 1,263 unique individuals. Oh. Only 17 of those individuals were identified, one of them being Rui Pedro. Oh. Even though he was identified in the photos, he was never found. That is, I, that is so awful. I know. I I think of the movie Taken. Like, where do they go? Right. Exactly. Horrifying. So, Rui Pedro's case is discussed in relation to Madeline's for two reasons. First, to question whether Rui Pedro could have been found if he'd been given the same attention as Madeline. But second, to question whether Madeline had been abducted as part of another trafficking ring in the area, Mm -hmm. like Rui Pedro. While some suspected the involvement of the most sinister circles in the Algarve or surrounding countries... Others felt the answers might lie closer to home. Mm. At the outset of the investigation, there were no eyebrows raised in the direction of the McCanns having any involvement, but many felt like those closest to a missing child are the most likely suspects and were frustrated that the police had never even pulled on that thread. Well, considering they're pulling real hard on the other threads. Right. (laughs) And like there were five other people or more than that, right? Other people with them on vacation. Seven, yeah. Yeah. And I... I'm also, I wonder if we'll talk about also the fact that the twins were still there. Why would you take one? I mean, female, the twins were male, right? Boys? Male and female. Oh, so I don't, I don't understand. I mean, other than age, why you would take one child and leave the other two children. Yeah. I don't have an answer for you. No, that's another one. I'm so sorry. You got 19 pages there. I'm so sorry. (laughs) Desperate for any answers, the police decided to take a look at Kate and Jerry. The McCanns had made many media appearances at that point, and in hindsight, Jerry was described by viewers as cold and easily able to dominate others in the conversations and interviews. Police went back through the investigator interviews of the McCanns in the top of seven and started to question the timeline of events laid out by the group, who said that while they were at the restaurant, they would each check on their own children every 15 minutes. Mm -hmm. But the police felt that that way of staggering their safety checks They would just constantly be passing each other back and forth, headed to the apartments, and basically no one would be sitting at the table. Right. As an aside, we sort of mentioned this. I really think that they were checking on them maybe like every 30 Uh to 45 minutes, maybe to an hour. Uh But they're like, oh shit, like that's making us look like bad parents and someone went missing. So it's like every 15 minutes, we, one of us religiously checked on each of our kids. I, when in reality, they probably weren't setting an alarm for 15 minutes. They probably went, oh yeah, I'll run back and check now. Yeah. You know, they were there every single night. They had like six to eight bottles of wine while they were there. I mean, like they were drinking on vacation and having a good time. That's what you do on vacation. Mm -hmm. But when shit goes down, Mm -hmm. you sort of exaggerate and sort of like negate your 
effect on the situation. Yes, yeah. on the situation. Yeah. Exactly. Yep. So I don't see it as nefarious. I see it as human nature. Totally. Aside from the questionable timeline, upon further inspection, police felt that there were also inconsistencies in Jerry's statements. The first statement he made when talking to the police, he said that when he checked on Madeline at 9.05, he used the key and went in through the front door. In a subsequent statement, he said he went through the back door, which he left open. As another aside, Kate and Jerry had been using that front door at the beginning of the week, so it's possible he got the days confused since his daughter yeah. was missing and his brain probably ceased to function. That's what I was going to say. I, in under not, not even close to those kind of stressful conditions, I would fail to give any kind of appropriate detail or accurate detail. I know. Like, I don't remember if, if somebody asked me, oh, did you shut your garage before you put your bag down? Or I don't know. Sometimes I do it one order and then the other order and I would, I would be caught lying all the time. A hundred percent. I back out of my driveway Mm -hmm. and I stop. And I close my garage door uh-huh. and I watch it close because uh-huh. I'll, I immediately drive away and I'm like, oh, did I close the garage door? Of course. And I will still drive away and be like, did I close the garage door? Mm-hmm. There is now a video camera pointed <laughs> at our garage door so that I can just check to make sure that I closed it. Exactly. Because five seconds later, I cannot remember if I did because it's when it's like something habitual. Right. You start mixing up the days exactly. of when you did it. Like, mm-hmm. did I unplug my curling iron? I did yesterday. And is that the time that I'm remembering and it's still right. plugged in? Right. Exactly. So I think like, again, I don't think any of these are no. nefarious. I think it's just mm-hmm. human nature in mm-hmm. these situations. Yep. The police also took issue with Kate's account that the window and shutter in Madeline's room were open. The open window suggested that an intruder may have broken in through the window and taken her back out that way or through one of the doors. The window and shutter were dusted for fingerprints, but only Kate's were found on the inside. There was apparently no signs of forced entry, and the window was only about 20 inches wide and was three feet off the ground. So Mm. it would be pretty hard for someone to fit through it, like straight through it. I was also thinking to that point of the days blending together in the scenarios. Maybe they on some days did have the window open and on some days they didn't and they forgot that they left it open on that day. You know what I mean? Like I would yeah. never remember wh- how open or shut the door was. Maybe maybe that because you're like intentionally right. closing it. But maybe you forgot that the window was open that time. And I in my um, childhood bedroom, if you left the windows open and the door wasn't fully oh, shut it would, would kind of yeah it would, well or it would slam or it would go it could go either way depending on gusts and oh, okay. air pressure from the rest of mm-hmm. the house so like if you if they open the slider and the window is open it could have opened the door do you know what right. i mean like there's all these things that just the fact that it was different than they thought it should be might not actually point to anything the only thing with the window is i think think that they never opened the window or the shutter. I mm. think it was standard fra- practice for it to always be shut oh. during the vacation. Interesting. Which the shutter, I'm going to describe it as the metal barrier that you would see pulled over businesses and windows oh. in sketchy neighborhoods. Okay. Like that's what it looked oh. like. It was like a roller huh. shutter. Interesting. That was pulled down over the window typically. Okay. Yeah. That's pretty significant, I guess. I'm just picturing like my bedroom window. (laughs) I might crack it or something. Okay. Right. Huh. So how could someone fit through the window? Right. Holding a sleeping child. If it's barely wide enough for them on their own, three feet off the ground. And so the shutters, from what I read, they'd have to be propped up with something or they would come down. They were operated by a string, but I think that they would like fall down if you didn't jack them up. They either had to be fully opened or all the way down. Um, and then if the shutter was closed when Madeline went to bed, there was no way to open it from the outside. 
it would have to be forced open and that would leave damage, which they didn't find any. And it would also be incredibly noisy because it was made out of metal like that. Jerry said that he had closed the shutter after he learned that Madeline had been taken and the shutter was lowered when the police arrived. But Hmm. they were just really sketched out about this window situation. They were clinging to it. The inconsistencies weren't enough. So the police tried to develop some physical evidence, which is always helpful. Fair. On July 31st, 2007, they let the dogs out. Who? 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 (laughs) You may ask. I'm so glad. I'm so glad you said it. (laughs) Handler Martin Grimes brought two English Springer Spaniels, Eddie, a cadaver dog, and Keela, a blood dog, to apartment 5A at Praia de Luge. This was almost three months after Madeline's disappearance, and the room had been put back in circulation about two months prior. Eddie, the cadaver dog, went first, excitedly entering the apartment ready to work. He first alerted in the bedroom in which Jerry and Kate had been staying between the bed and a shelf in a closet. He then alerted to a spot behind the couch in the living room. Keela, the blood dog, also alerted to the spot behind the couch. Uh Uh-oh. On August 2nd, 2007, the dogs also searched the villa where the McCanns had been staying since Madeline went missing. Eddie, the cadaver dog, only alerted to one thing. The cuddle cat that Kate had been carrying (gasps) around everywhere. Oh no. Oh, that gave me chills. The police didn't stop there. On August 6th, 2007, they put together a collection of vehicles in a parking garage. The McCann's rental car, cars of the McCann's acquaintances, and even Robert Murat's car for a total of 10 vehicles. The handler said he wasn't told whose car was who, so there would be less chance of bias. The cadaver dog alerted to the driver's side door of the McCann's rental car, and Keela alerted to the same car in the right side of the trunk or the boot of the car, as they called it. Here's the weird thing. The McCann's had not rented that car until 24 to 25 days after Madeline disappeared. (gasps) Oh, so many chills, but I have a question. Okay. Um, do you happen to know how long a body has to be, how long someone has to be dead for a cadaver dog to alert? Like, do you know what I'm asking? Like in the, because the car is one thing. That's a whole different story. But in the house, if it's, if, if she wasn't left there, because they searched the whole house. Right. So if she, if it was the same night that she went missing, is that long enough for a cadaver dog to be able to scent? I recall reading in the Kristen Smart episode that a body will start releasing the chemicals Mm -hmm. that a a cadaver dog is smelling within like seconds of death. Oh my God. Oh wow. But then I also heard something else that a body needs to sit in a certain position. I want to say it was for like 45 minutes or something like that in order for it to leave that scent. Okay. So, like, if there was a body, the dog would smell it in the area, but for it to Hmm. leave the scent. Interesting. I may have exaggerated a little bit. I think maybe it's, like, two minutes Mm -hmm. instead of two seconds, but still, the the decomp smell comes out very quickly. Whether or not it stays, I think the body has to sit a little bit longer than that. Yeah, because I was, I guess I was thinking if the dogs had alerted to anything in the apartment, that it would imply that that was immediately after because they searched the whole place. But I guess I don't know. I guess... And the, the timing, the problem with scents like that is there's no, there's no time stamp on the scent. Right, right. So five years prior, maybe that's, maybe that's a stretch. Okay. Let's say within that year, right. an 80 year old couple went on vacation and rented that room and one of them died on the floor. See, that's a much nicer thing than I was going to say. Perhaps they had some really bad tenants in the apartment after. 
so like murder <laughs> yeah. people i mean that <laughs> who too. just happened to store some bodies there temporarily you just never know just especially in this area this, yeah. is, this is just not a good area apparently not but yeah. no i get what you're saying now let's talk about the car we're okay okay because okay. okay. that one i'm i'm with you that one's strange the police collected boxes of the mccann's belongings and brought them to a warehouse they placed the items along the perimeter of the warehouse and sent in the dogs one at a time Eddie, the cadaver dog, alerted on one of Kate's blouses, her pants, and a child's t-shirt. Oh, dear. So. Oh, dear. Well, okay, because then I was also, I forgot about the cat that it alerted to as well, the stuffed cat. Mm -hmm. And I was thinking if that wasn't taken with Madeline's body, then that also had to be fairly recent, um, like fairly close to her death. Right. how How would they have ended up with it? I don't know. It makes the dogs ruin the whole case for me. I don't, yeah. like, I don't, I cannot explain it. And dogs are like hips. They don't lie. <laughs> <laughs> well, okay, no. So the handler of the dogs, Martin Grimes, did point out that the dogs don't alert on things that aren't their target scent, but the alerts are not evidence on their own. They're just a tool for the police to find corroborating evidence. Okay. I don't like that. No, but that's just one (laughs) thing. So forensic evidence was compiled from the areas in which the dogs alerted, and it was sent to a lab for analysis. It was at this point that the police judiciary felt like they might not be dealing with a missing persons case. The McCanns were brought in for questioning, the police trying to make sense of the hits by the cadaver and blood dog. Mm -hmm. The McCanns had no answers for them. Jerry answered all the questions. Kate declined to answer almost 50 questions over the course of an 11-hour interview, Ugh. which is just, I mean, they really, they had the stamina. Yeah. The, the police judiciary had stamina. Did you want to talk about the car before we move on? Yes, I did. Because, okay. so you, I was stuck for a moment on the apartment and the timing of cadaver dogs, but mm-hmm. you said that they alerted in the rental car and that had been rented almost a month after Madeline mm-hmm. went. So I guess the implication is that they moved if if it's accurate that they moved her body or something afterwards because obviously that was not from the night of her disappearance correct Hmm. and then i also was thinking about just it the the timing was really bothering me on on where the items were and where the dogs alerted so you would have the madeline would have if she had been killed would have had to have been killed in the apartment yeah. Because her body was there. Well, I guess right. I guess you could have taken her out, killed her, and then brought her back in and then brought her back out. But who has the time? Right, exactly. You gotta get back to dinner. There was a small window. Yeah. There was a very small window of yeah. time. Yes. Yeah. Huh. And there's obviously there was not blood everywhere. There was not they I'm sure they were testing for that. So Right. And keep huh. in mind with the theory that the McCanns were moving her in this car, mm. the media were all oh over them i mean the True. video the video clips oh, of it yeah. the video clips of it the villa that they were staying there was like a gate and the police would like stand at the gate and would have to open it to huh. let them out of their car and the cops and and the media would just be taking pictures of their car and the kids in the back seat right. and like they were all like when are they moving her yeah where are they moving her they're exactly. in a foreign country this right. is not their country like w- w- when did they come up with this plan? no I, that's a great like, point that's but, a great point. Like who, again, who has the time? Like right. when did they do this? Yeah. Oh, it, that's perplexing. It's very perplexing. 
On September 3rd, the forensic lab sent an email to police that the blood sample taken from the boot of the McCann's vehicle contained 15 out of 19 of Madeline's DNA components, which sounds damning, but the results were too complex for meaningful interpretation. Hmm. There were at least three contributors to the sample, maybe even up to five. And without samples from the other contributors to sort of eliminate some of the markers, the result was essentially meaningless. I remember I went into depth understanding that distinction back in a, um, I think our third Peabony episode. So go check it out with Gertrude Ochenkowski. Oh, um, I won't give away why I was looking into DNA or what I found, but if you would like to have a, a brief dissertation on DNA, uh, please check that out. Yeah. But it was, it, that was one of the challenges is it, if there are other contributors, it's often you're looking for like spikes right. in relation. And if you right. don't have enough to rule it out, it's, it's not, um, it's not enough evidence or not, not, they can't come, yeah, they can't come to conclusive opinions exactly. based on the evidence. And that's important too in this case because that car was being used by Kate and Jerry. Kate and Jerry are Madeline's parents. Uh-huh. They share DNA, uh-huh. if you could believe it. <laughs> so the existence of 15 out of 19 of Madeline's markers becomes a little less significant when you think that like maybe Kate and Jerry cut their finger taking grocery bags out of the car. Exactly. Like, who knows? Mm-hmm. So the police didn't have the full forensic report available, but a summary of the report was translated from Portuguese to English. In true circus fashion, the police leaked it to the press. And the summary just happened to not include the piece that indicated that the result was essentially meaningless. The media went wild, reporting that there was an 80% match from the blood in the rental car and that they expected that the full report would confirm the blood in the car belonged to Madeline. Wow. So that that was not the Portuguese media. That was right because it was in Portuguese. So if it was Portuguese media, they would have been able to read the it whole report. It was all of the media, oh. which I don't think the report was made public. The only thing that was made oh, public oh, oh, was oh, this, oh. Tran- this translated email yep. that was leaked. Oh, that's awful. It is. And now... All eyes are on Kate and Jerry. Right. Sure. And I'm so sorry, but that's where we're going to stop for this episode. No, no. Wait, but so they're not there. We know that they're probably not guilty at all. And certainly that the tests are not indicating that, but we're not going to. Right. We're not going to talk about that. Not <laughs> next episode. We will. No. Yeah. We're going to oh. talk about it next episode. You know what the ultimate uh, DNA results were and what happened with the investigation into Kate and Jerry. And then we've got, uh, some other little interesting tidbits mm. to talk about, but so I did tell someone that I didn't think this was going to be a two part mm-hmm. episode. Um, but I ended up with 19 pages <laughs> yeah. and it's yep. a lot. So I'm going to split it up so that you okay, guys have, fair. you know, time to digest it and really prepare <laughs> yourselves. Yes. For part two. Okay, fine. If you're enjoying listening to Grimm, I'm not. <laughs> please rate and follow us wherever you listen to podcasts to make sure you don't miss any episodes. If you listen to us on Apple Podcasts, make our day by leaving us a written review. You can find our page on Facebook by searching Grimm colon a true crime podcast. If you want to subscribe to our Patreon, you can go to Patreon and search Grimm colon a true crime podcast. Follow us on Instagram at Grim Crime Podcast for information on future episodes and case photos. If you want to send us a case suggestion or just say hi, you can email us at grimcrimepodcast at gmail.com. Listen, learn, and stay alive until next time because the future is grim. Grim.